Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Empowered Woman Rises podcast. My name is Preeti, and I'm so glad you're here. In the last episode, we started defining the problem that we're looking to tackle through this movement, and we answered two questions. What is the problem, and what are some root causes? We discussed that the problem is that women all around the world experience discrimination, marginalization, loss of agency, harassment, and targeted violence every single day. And we explored some of the root causes, such as patriarchy, gendered racism, discrimination due to socioeconomic status, and sexual orientation and gender identity. So patriarchy, we found, was the main reason that creates the gender divide, and then each and every factor builds on top of it. Really, what we're going to find through all of this, all of the work that we're doing, is that anything about you can and will be held against you. And that's an unfortunate truth. Now, in today's episode, we're going to address why all of this is a problem, right? So why should we look to do anything about this problem? Um, I can sit here and quantify it for you, and I can tell you that a 2018 study by the World Bank found that the global cost of gender inequality was $160 trillion in terms of human capital with North America contributing for $47.2 trillion of it. But those numbers aren't going to mean anything to you, right? And which is why what we'll do is we'll answer the question of why we need to tackle this problem by looking at the consequences of the deep-seated discriminatory and objectifying practices around the world. And we'll do that through specific examples of women's oppression. You've heard of some of these stories. Some of this may be new to you. And before we go any further, I do want to put a trigger warning here. We'll be discussing violence and rape-based statistics. So please, if any of these topics are triggers for you, please don't listen to this episode, this particular episode, any further. Um, Your mental health and well-being is very important to me. So please protect it and please join us for the next episode. All right, let's dive into these examples. In 2008, Taliban took over a town in a Pakistani village and said that the education of girls needed to cease or schools would face dire consequences. Malala Yousafzai starts speaking up publicly about girls' rights to be educated. She loved school, her dad ran an all-girls school, and she didn't see why her education needed to stop. You know, she, in her own words, didn't want to be confined at home bearing children. Um, And in 2012, the Taliban shoots a 15-year-old Malala in the head. She fights for her life over the next three months before being brought out of a medically-induced coma because she questioned the regime in place. Before we move on to the next example, let's just look at this and talk about why oppressive regimes want to prevent girls' education. And the answer is, it's because if girls are educated, if women are educated... They know their rights. They know what resources are available to them and what they can do, what they can ask for. They know there's a whole another world out there that they can go to and they don't have to depend on anyone. When they're not educated, they are dependent on someone, right? They're dependent on someone to take care of them. They don't know what's available. They don't know where to go and what to do. So then they're treated like property and they can be sold off. They can be raped. They can be tortured and they wouldn't know where to go. Education is key to their freedom and self-preservation. 
For example, UNESCO found that when girls are educated, they're less likely to be subjected to female genital mutilation practices and less likely to be sold off for money because they're educated and they can bring money to the household so they can provide value. Um, A sad statistic reports that the pandemic has put girls, especially in countries where female genital mutilation happens a lot in, you know, really bad situations because their education stopped and they have no way to report any violence, any female genital mutilation that may be happening. It's, I mean, it's awful. The Malala Fund uh, estimates that 20 million of the girls won't be returning back to school. And you know, organizations like UN and uh, WHO are worried about what it means for these girls' futures, but also what it means for what they're going through every single day. Going back to the World Bank study from earlier, um, you know, they also found that in countries where girls' education levels remain lower than boys, not only are they less literate, but then they're also limited to certain types of work they can do, right? So they're also then limited to their gender roles. They're expected to bear children before they're ready. And because they don't have equal footing, they don't have equal say. Their bargaining power and voice is decreased, and they're going to face higher risks of gender-based violence. So female genital mutilation is one example. Um, This also affects their children. The same study found that children of young and poorly educated moms are likely to die of malnourishment by the age of five, and they're likely to do poorly in schools. Education matters. Education is one of the keys to freedom, which is, again, why any oppressive regime is going to try to stop women and girls from getting educated. Um, At one of the women's empowerment conferences I attended, I heard from Nadia Murad. Nadia is an Iraqi Yazidi woman who is one of 6,700 women who were captured, beaten, raped, and burned by ISIS in 2014 when ISIS attacked their homeland with the goal to ethnically cleanse all Yazidis. Women and children were enslaved and actually continue to be enslaved in ISIS camps today. When I heard Nadia's story from her, I just, I remember being just in heart, you know, just so completely shocked. And one particular thing she said still stays with me today. She said that girls and women started to burn themselves alive so they wouldn't be captured, so they wouldn't be raped, so they wouldn't be tortured. In India, let's take the next example. Even though dowry was made illegal in 1961, it is still expected in the form of a hefty amount of jewelry, money, and gifts, so much so that a 2020 study found 20 women dying every day because of dowry-related emotional torture leading to suicide or murder of these brides. I personally know of stories where the woman's age is brought into question if she's older, even if the would-be groom is the same age, again, as a form of expressing that the groom's family is taking the woman off of her parents' hands. They're taking the burden of the woman off of the parents' hands. I personally know women who were divorced because they couldn't bear children. Never mind the fact that in both cases, it wasn't the woman's fault. Growing up, I heard stories of women being blamed if they couldn't produce a son, even when people knew it is the father who contributes the X or Y chromosome. The father determines the sex of the child. 
what do we see in places where this narrative holds? We see increased rates of female infanticide, which is actually why in countries like India, you cannot find out the sex of the baby because authorities are rightfully afraid of what would happen if families found out the baby is a girl. Let's go to American statistics next. A 2015 National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey found that in the U.S., 43.6% of women, so nearly 52 million women, experience some form of contact sexual violence in their lifetime, with one in five reporting completed or attempted rape, one in six reporting sexual coercion, one in four experiencing sexual violence, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner during their lifetime. To further classify this, according to USAID, women and girls with disabilities face twice the rate of gender-based violence, sexual abuse, neglect, maltreatment, and exploitation as that of women and girls without disabilities. Twice the amount. Now, you know, if all of these examples feel distant to you, if, you know, you can't relate to it, or if you're thinking, well, this would never happen to me. Let's talk about an example that probably will hit closer to home for you. And let me start by asking you a question. How many times have you or someone you know said something like, "Ugh, I look so fat, or no, I can't eat that. I'm watching my calories, or I shouldn't have eaten that last night. Now I need to detox or some variation of that. Think back to that moment and ask yourself why you or the person you know said that. Is it because you were having medical issues and you're concerned that what you did is causing or exacerbating it? Or are you comparing yourself to a celebrity that you love and admire or someone you saw in a movie or a TV show or some person who's been idealized? If it's the latter, you're doing what's called self-objectification. According to a East Michigan University paper, self-objectification occurs when the objectifying gaze is turned inward, such that women view themselves through the perspective of an observer and engage in chronic surveillance. So society's objectifying you, and now what you've done is you've taken that and turned it inward so that you are now objectifying yourself. And you are as the definition says, chronically self-surveilling. You're watching everything you're doing, what you're eating, how you dress up, how that makes you look. The, you know, the interesting thing and really the horrifying thing that the paper goes on to talk about is how self-objectification leads to consequences like depression and eating disorders. And these things start setting in from a very young age. 47% of girls in the 5th to 12th grade report wanting to lose weight because they compare themselves to idealized magazine photographs. 69% of girls in the 5th to 12th grade report that these images in the magazines, in social media, on TV, influence their idea of a perfect body shape. Young, impressionable minds are forced to compare themselves and question if they look okay because of what they see right? What does body dysmorphia then lead to? You're going to see anorexia, going to see bulimia. You're going to start to see, you know, 
the need for or the you know the demand for plastic surgery because by the way your role models are getting plastic surgery done too and then social media further exacerbates the problem because now on social media the same people who are also getting plastic surgery are also then promoting diet pills so now your child wants to be on these diet pills and just think about this for a second these are kids Kids as young as 10 years old who are starting to feel shame and guilt about their bodies. And why? Because the world around is telling them that they're not good enough. Recently, there was some backlash against Disney incorporating um, the prince kissing Snow White in one of their rides, right? So in the story, Snow White is poisoned and this prince comes and kisses her and she wakes up. And the backlash was that, you know, Clearly, this is a case of a non-consensual kiss. Why are you incorporating this? And I know people who rolled their eyes saying, are you kidding me? It's just a fairy tale. But think about why parents are fighting against this, right? Think about the narrative that is around our children at all times. Parents are just trying to protect their kids and educate them against the larger narrative at play and language and mindset that is still prevalent. It starts with stories like Snow White, where you're saying, okay, well, consent doesn't matter. And then girls are hearing things like tank tops are not appropriate at school and you need to cover up. Or boys will be boys. Or he's being mean to you because he likes you. So you're invalidating feelings. You're making bullying okay. What do the girls do? They start to internalize this. They start to grow up. And now they're going to be told not to take the path home that's not well lit. Or carry pepper sprays. Or don't go out at night. Don't dress provocatively. You see politicians say that a woman's body has a way of shutting things down if it's quote-unquote legitimate rape. By the way, there's no such thing as that. Let me just clarify that. That statement is insane. But what you see is victim blaming and shaming. You keep going. You start to see marginalization patterns in schooling. Think about women in STEM. You start to experience workplace discrimination because you're a woman. You're a woman of color. You're part of the LGBTQ plus community. More recently, you see how 5 million women's jobs were lost in the pandemic and how still so many of these women are having a harder time returning to work than their male counterparts. A Guardian article recently found that we've seen an explosion of violence towards women, whether they're cisgender or gender diverse. Intimate terrorism and lockdown has turned the home into a kind of torture chamber for millions of women. This is directly from the article. It keeps going and says, we've seen the spread of revenge porn as lockdown has pushed the world online. Such digital sexual abuse is now central to domestic violence as intimate partners threaten to share sexually explicit images without the victim's consent. I mean, honestly, I, you know, I, I can go on forever to keep giving you examples of how harmful society is in its current state for a woman, which is why I cannot stress enough how important education is, how important it is that we start changing the mindset, that we start changing the narrative around us, that we start paying attention to the language we use. We start paying attention to who represents us everywhere, in politics, in media, in the workplace, in schooling, all of these things are important. And they start with things that young kids are exposed to, including stories like Snow White. Now, if what I talked about today makes you uncomfortable, 
I just want you to think about how the people actually suffering through these things feel and channel that discomfort into change that ensures basic human rights for everyone, because that is what's being taken away from girls and women everywhere. I urge you to think about what you can change, whether it's changing your mindset or influencing somebody around you or standing up for somebody who you see is facing these things. Any small step in the right direction is progress and can lead us to a better future. On that same note, I want you to know that there are efforts underway all around the world that are looking to address the issues we talked about today little by little. For every unjust law out there, there is an activist protesting against it. There are organizations and governments working to change the narrative, and we'll cover some of them in the next episode to answer the question of, well, what's being done to address the problem today? But personal experience, the stories we heard today, ongoing issues that the pandemic has exacerbated tell me a lot still remains to change, and we have a lot of work to do. Before we go, um, last time I spoke about putting my source links up on my website. The website is now live, and today's episode source links are going to be listed there as well. So if you're interested, please check out www.theempoweredwomanrises.com. That's all for today. Thank you for your time. I'll see you in the next episode. Take care.